Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Vegas Game Podcast. Uh, it's the beginning of March. It's been about a month, I think, since the last time we spoke. Um, we've got some interesting stuff to talk about today. Uh, but before we do that, we have an announcement. Um, if you listen to this show, you probably have already heard this information, but we are going to share it with you anyway, and you will be hearing this for the next several months. Um, so we are super happy to announce that uh, we have dates for the 2015 edition of the Vegas Internet Mafia Family Picnic, and it will be again in October. The 16th, 17th, and 18th are the dates that we've got scheduled, um, and that is the info that we have to share so far. So there is going to be more coming uh, pertaining to host hotel, pertaining to activities. Um, we're actively working on that stuff, and uh, I think it's going to be great. I, I think uh, you know folks that have been before will will find uh, some of their favorite events returning, and other other things uh, maybe taking a break and um, some new stuff. So I think it's going to be fun, and uh, if you possibly can. Mark your calendar for October 16th, 17th, and 18th for VIMF 2015. You can also go to VegasInternetMafia.com to see uh, a brilliant uh, illustration that Chuck put together in announcing our dates. So, um, Chuck, anything you want to say about VIMF before we move on? Uh, you know, we're seven months out. I know people get sick of hearing about this, so try and keep keep it real, but... I'm really excited. We've got kind of the plan is almost sort of together, the whole deal, and it's going to be fun. For the people who don't come, this is a, who have never been, this is just all of our friends and listeners and our friends at the 500 and all the VT guys and Dave and Hunter and the gang. We all get together and we do a bunch of events through the course of the weekend, and it's at a host hotel, so... Every year, it's just get to meet all your internet friends who are all Vegas freaks, talking about Vegas, being in Vegas, and just Vegas, 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 like lunatics, and maybe some Macau discussion on the side. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a, a fun, fantastic. If you have never been, and you've been putting it off every year, you have to come, really. Yeah, I agree. And this is the year you should come. So Don't wait. Mark your calendars, start circling dates, arrange the babysitter, put in for time off from work, you know, come visit us, come hang out, we'd be happy to see you, we'd be very happy to see you, middle of October. Yep, absolutely, totally agree. Um, Dave, we need uh, some kind of big splashy event, do you think you can write a book between now and then that you could release on, on that day? I'll do my best. Okay, that sounds fairly non-committal, I'm going to put you yeah. down for a book. I'll give it a shot, but we'll one see. book from Dave. Maybe okay. I could, maybe a, uh, maybe an article. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Um, all right, great. A novella. So, How about a novella? Yeah. Well, okay. I'm willing to compromise. Novella sounds reasonable to me. Yeah. Um. So yeah, VegasInternetMafia.com. You can also follow Vimp on Twitter uh, to get all of the latest and greatest news bits. So we'll be dribbling out more information as we choose to. Because we're in charge and you're not. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, 
uh, wanted to get into some get into some topics. Um, on our last show, we had you know a Vegas gang exclusive tip information that you could couldn't find anywhere else, which was that the Riviera might be closing. Um, if you heard it, you know that you heard it because we told it to you because that information wasn't available anywhere else. Um, that's <laughs> heavily laced with sarcasm, in case you yes. can't tell. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so we had a note on our last show that uh, at, the t- at the time was just a rumor was that the Riviera would be closing, um, and we didn't really know much more. There was speculation that it uh, might be redeveloped, that it might be demolished. Um, well, since then, we have learned the details of said plan, and yes, it is true. The Riviera is indeed closing in the not-too-distant future. Um, and it's going to be purchased by the LVCVA, the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, the folks that run the convention center that are out there marketing Las Vegas with the What Happens Here Stays Here uh, campaign, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they have had a plan in place, sort of a broad plan to continue to expand the convention facilities that uh, the city offers. And part of that plan, part of implementing that plan, they are going to buy the Riviera and turn it into – Dirt, um, <laughs> where or well, at least temporarily. When they were, then they will eventually turn it into uh, convent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it looks like they put up some renderings and stuff, and it looks like uh, you know they'll do some convention space, and I think they've got some other ideas for some some facilities that they think will help them lure in more convention business, um, that sort of thing. So. Um, the Riviera, you know, one of the uh, one of the longest or oldest uh, properties on the Strip is going to be it's going to be Vominos pretty soon, um, which you know, along with places like the Stardust and the Dunes and the Sands and the Desert Inn and the Hacienda. I mean, we're losing these places. There's not that many of them left, right? We've still got the Flamingo, and then there are some other places that are a little bit newer, like Caesar's Palace and Circus Circus, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but you know, we're losing some of these some of these old places. Um, how do you guys feel about the Riviera going bye bye? I can tell you personally. Um, I walked through the Riviera about a year ago um, on my way down uh, <coughs> down the strip, and it is a shithole. Um, it was really sad inside. It's the strip's equivalent of the Las Vegas Club. Um, it's just there was like these big empty rooms or big empty areas without any slot machines in them and without any people and without anything in them. And the places that were open, um, just looked pretty old and decrepit. Um, so I, you know, I'm a fan of history. Um, and of course I hope that everybody that works there is going to be able to find a job elsewhere. But beyond that, I really couldn't care less about the Riviera going bye-bye. Now, granted, it's going to be turned into like a business center, which is not probably going to interest me at all. So it's not like what's coming up is going to be something that I really care that much about either. But um, it's hard for me to be sad about the Riviera uh, closing. I don't know. Do you guys disagree? Not entirely, no. You know, like you said, my first thought is that it's terrible for the people working there. You know, that's obviously a tragedy for them. But in the big picture, if there really was this huge groundswell of support for the Riviera and it really was this beloved, cherished property, more people would be going there and spending money there and they wouldn't be selling. So I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, I, what what is it that makes one place... 
you know, it seems like the nostalgia varies quite a bit. I remember the Stardust close, closing, um, and people were really sad about that. And they wanted to go and stay there before it closed. I remember staying there, I think it was like the night before when Las Vegas opened. Um, and uh, wanted to get in a stay before before it closed. And so, you know, that seemed like a spot where people had a connection. Um, New Frontier? Less so, right? Nobody seemed to really care about the New Frontier going bye-bye. And um, I get the sense that the Riviera is on the is on the minus side of this equation. Uh, I don't, I don't really feel like, uh, it's engendered a whole lot of nostalgia in folks. Chuck, am I wrong about this? Is the Riviera, um, you know, are we going to miss the Riviera when it's gone? I don't believe so. It's, it's always just sad to see any of the old things. You know, I'm an old softy. I love the old joints, the funky ones. You know, I kind of miss the Imperial palace for the way it was, uh, to a degree. Uh, I miss O'Shea's the way it was, you know the old the old ways. The uh, the hell's that place called? Barbary Gansevoort mm. thing. Yes, the way that right. was, you know. You no, know, but you know, progress is never going to stop. And and apparently, despite uh, some owners who possibly could have done something, you know, they certainly have the ingenuity. It didn't pencil out for anybody involved. They did make some incremental upgrades not all that long ago uh, they relocated the lobby and tried to change the flow and, and move things and they've attracted uh, the hacker conventions well actually no that moved you know they've been trying to do some stuff but it just hasn't really come to fruition what to what they were trying to do so uh, it's sad but thus is the way of the north strip and it proves even further how what a gamble SLS is to try and make spend all that money to try and make something work yeah. at, at a higher price range than dirt cheap. Right, you know? and you know I, that it's funny you you mentioned SLS just as I was thinking of SLS because you know that there was a time when the plan for the Riviera was to SLS it right was to basically redevelop it but on the same bones um, there was the I think was it Steelman like that video animated video of like of what the place would look like concept video and. Um, I would say that so far, and I'm not going to draw a line between um, older facilities and SLS's problems, but I would say that so far SLS hasn't seemed to be a huge success. Um, and, you know, I, I do hear people's comments about SLS, and sometimes they're, um, they're positive, but, uh, you know, people do comment about how small the rooms are. And uh, and some of that stuff, and that's of course just because it's a really old building, right? I mean, and and the Riviera would have been the same thing. I I would say, you know, it seems like um, trying to do a huge refurbish on on one of those older joints when people really expect different things from their hotel rooms these days is is pretty dicey. Um, maybe you can pull it off, but uh, you know, it's it's you're not really starting from a great spot, and so. Um, I don't know. I, I will not miss the Riviera. Uh, I wonder, though, like, is the LVCVA, are they just going to, like, take over that whole zone? I mean, that's a lot of space. Um, of course, there's other things around it that they haven't gotten. The people were worried about uh, the pepper mill, which is 
um, on a sort of adjacent lot, I believe. And I think they've come out and been pretty clear about the fact that they're that they're there to stay. Um, but uh, do we think that we're going to see um, the LVCVA trying to buy up more land? I mean, obviously, Fontainebleau's right there, and and uh, I Carl Icahn I think has shown that it's pretty much a money thing for him. Like, as he gets as soon as he gets the right number, he's uh, he's going to be out of there. Um, do we do we think that they're going to continue to expand? They might. You know, you've got to keep in mind that this um, strip thing that they're doing, I'm, I'm totally uneloquent today, so I can't think of the correct kind of uh, PR marketing phrase for it, but this project is going to be about a 10-year project. Right. So once that's done, they may. I think the most interesting thing to me is the potential that this has to really shape the city around it and the, that transportation hub element of it, I think could really change how people get around. So we may see a more robust public transportation, both on the Strip and around Las Vegas than what we have now. Hmm. Interesting. Do you... So, of course, um, convention is big business in Las Vegas, and um, the LVCVA with the LVCC have the largest facility, but, you know, Sands Expo is uh, right up there. It's quite gigantic. Uh, and there's been some problems in the past, some complaints that, uh, you know, since the LVCVA is, is sort of funded through through taxes on on what some of the strip resorts. And basically it's competing with people like Sheldon Adelson, who, if, I, if my memory is correct, wasn't super thrilled with some of that back in the day. But I haven't heard anything this time around about him, like, trying to block this or sue them or anything like that. Well, the thing is, they're trying to lure these shows that are so big – can't fit them at the Sands Expo Center, so need to have a bigger facility. That's really what it all comes down to, is that you need to have these giant facilities to do that. And I, when I, was, I wrote a column for Seven about it, when I was, I was just kind of running through some of these huge, huge shows with 100,000 people or more, and they're spread out over three facilities. So they'll be uh-huh. at the LVCVA... Sands Expo Center and Mandalay Bay. And just right. think about the logistics of that, how, how that's going to be difficult. And kind of the other really interesting thing about this is that MGM is expanding the Mandalay Bay Convention right. Center. So there's so much market out there, I think, that we're going to see this continue. Yeah, that's a good point. They are they – are- doing a pretty significant expansion yeah. um, to that space, which is already quite large. So I see uh, this really as complimentary. And the other thing is that it's beyond, It's more than just hosting conventions. They've got the global World Trade Center aspect of it, where pretty much companies will have kind of branch offices here. Mm. I have little branch offices, so people can come over from China with all of their exports and kind of show them here instead of having to fly around the United States going and going to meet with people. I think that's that could really be a big deal. Excellent point. I don't know. I think it's interesting. Like I said, I won't, I'm not going to miss the Riviera. People have uh, ha- some some folks have come up with all kinds of crazy proclamations about how they should try and you know integrate the the buildings into what they're planning to do. But I think you know they've been the folks at the LVCVA have been pretty clear that uh, that will not happen, and they're just going to raise raise the thing. And um, and build what they want to build. So it's definitely the end of an era. But um, 
I don't know. I can't say that I'm all that shook up about it. It's kind of hard to be, and it's the kind of thing like you either die a hero or you live long enough to be a villain, I guess, you know? <laughs> right. So you either get your casino blown up 20 years ago and everybody's nostalgic now, or it hangs around long enough to get kind of run down and people aren't nostalgic. And I think it just says something about what people want when they come to Las Vegas, and you have the vintage places there that aren't doing well, and that's not what people want. People aren't spending their money there. And it might be because they're not able to, there's too much of a gap between what you get and what they charge. It's not like it's tremendous value. You know, I don't know if I'm expressing that right. What I'm saying is that you can, you're not, not really going to find a lot of stuff in Vegas for cheap these days. But the price difference between the Riviera and, say, the Flamingo or someplace a little bit down the road isn't, I don't think is really justified by the difference in the amenities. Right. That makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, Chuck, have you ever stayed at the Riviera? Yes, I have. Oh, Twice. really? Oh, yeah. Recent, recently? Uh, not too recently. Yeah. First time was a long time ago, and then maybe 2006 or so. Yeah. Stayed there. Okay. You know, it was yeah. serviceable. It was fine. I didn't, I didn't have really any major complaints. One thing that we are going to lose is, you know, the Riviera is like one of the places in Las Vegas that seems to be fairly open to film crews shooting there. And a ton of movies that sort of have Las Vegas casino interiors um, have used the Riv uh, uh, where they may not have been able to get into other spots. So, you know, the uh, sort of generic interior casino um, is going to be harder to find because not everyone can be uh, in Paul Bort Mall Cop 2. Um, <laughs> so we'll have to, the Martin Scorsese's of the world will have to find other other venues in which to shoot uh, their casino sequels. Um, okay, I think that's all we need to say about the Riv. Uh, I can't remember exactly when it's closing, but it's not all that far off. I want to say like June or something, maybe? It's, it's not in the all-too-distant future. So if you're a Riviera fan... And, uh, you know, both of you should go out and, uh, and stay there as soon as possible. Alrighty, let's talk about another interesting story. Um, this is from an article that, Dave, you wrote for Vegas 7. Was this on the cover? It was a fairly in-depth in, yeah. in piece. Okay, so I, I only... This is week's cover. Yeah, this week's cover story. Okay, so uh, the story of the Hard Rock Hotel. Um, Dave, I'm going to let you uh, give us some broad strokes here in a minute, uh, because clearly you know a lot more about the hard rock than I do. But um, I thought it was, I, I got a chance to read your piece. I thought it was really interesting. Definitely gave me a window into uh, some, some of, just some stuff I wasn't aware of. I thought I, I learned a lot in that piece, and it gave me some, I thought it was a very interesting perspective on how things have changed and a couple of call-outs to um, some of the things that were done first there that many people, I, I would say, many people either don't know was, was done first with the Hard Rock or uh, have forgotten. So, I don't know. Why don't you quickly, um, well, take, actually, take as much time as you'd like. Um, why don't you tell us about, uh, about your story and um, then we'll take it from there. I will tell you. Okay, so let me kind of backtrack and tell you my journey of discovery in writing this. So my first kind of what I'd known about the Hard Rock was that, yeah, 
it opened up in the mid-90s. They had a lot of concerts there. It was kind of the rock and roll thing, and it was the hip, young place. A couple of years before Mandalay Bay was the hip, young place, and then the Palms was the hip, young place. And that was about it. I never really went that deep into it. The more I started doing research and looking at this, the more I was convinced that I had really done them a disservice by not knowing more about it. And I think Peter Morton has a place in the pantheon of the people who changed Las Vegas for the better. Let me explain why. First of all, I'll tell you something that I learned by interviewing himself. I found out, and I'd never known this, that he actually had the chance to build Hard Rock where New York, New York is. Yep. And basically, it would have been the deal that Prima Donna got to build New York, New York. Right. Where he'll give the land, and they'll put this in, and they'll build it. So... So that would be one kind of those what-if things in Vegas. So imagine if the Hard Rock had been built where New York, New York is, and how different that would have, that would have made that and a lot of things. Right. But it's kind of interesting because he said, you know, I didn't – and so he's not a hotel guy, and this is Kirk Kerkorian's telling him, hey, we'll give you the land. We'll build it. You know, obviously Kirk knows what he's doing. And he said no because he wanted to own it all. He didn't want to be a minority shareholder. He went alone at all. And that's kind of neat because I don't know a lot of people who would have said old Kirk Kerkorian that at any point in Las Vegas history. If Kirk calls you up and says, hey, I want to back you, you know, let's build your idea, most people would jump at that chance, and rightfully so. Right. He said no, which kind of shows me that he's a maverick. And that was another thing that I, I liked about him that really came through was the fact that he wasn't necessarily a businessman first and he actually kind of said a couple of times I know he said in interviews that he doesn't isn't building this casino to maximize the revenue per square foot it's more about kind of setting the tone and and having it feel right which I think is such an important thing and goes against so much of the other plans, the way people build. So I think those were the two big things that really struck me about him was the fact that he didn't really have this focus and we're going to make this profitable, 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 but it was very profitable. So I think that's what I take away from it. I think I, and I suggest that everybody read the article. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a meaty, a meaty piece, right? It's, it's, uh, it's got some, a lot of good details in here. Um, I did not know that either. That he was uh, offered that uh, that New York, New York parcel. Um, so that was an interesting way to open, especially when you consider what he had to turn down. But um, I, I don't know. I, there's a lot of stuff that I, I didn't really. I mean, I guess maybe if I sat down and really thought about it, I could sort of reason it out. But uh, I, I I go back to what I said earlier, which is I feel like. A lot of uh, the things that we see in a lot of other places um, that originated the hard rock, the hard rock doesn't really get credit for that. I mean, the center bar concept, is, I think, is an interesting one. Yeah, where that's I didn't one. really think about it until you wrote it, but then I was like, oh yeah, okay, yes, it makes sense. And now it's such a mainstay, right? I mean, it's become a it, for at least for a certain type of property, it's become uh, a sort of standard design feature. Well, yeah, like booze being the selling point and not slot machines. No, right. that's what it comes down to. Right. <clears throat> and just your your reminder that um 
you know, the slot machines even, right? This was before the era of everything being being branded and, and having all these different slot brands. They went ahead and decided they didn't want, you know, just all double diamond deluxe with cheese. They wanted to have some different stuff in there. And so did did some different artwork and whatever on the on some of those slots, which I think is also interesting. Um, you, <laughs> you, uh, reminded me that there once was a, not, this is sort of a side note, but you reminded me that there once was a restaurant in Las Vegas called Dive at the Fat yeah. Mall with Steven yeah. Spielberg in the fake submarine. Um, mm-hmm. I actually ate there once. Uh, huh. we don't have, we don't have to talk about that, but, uh, it reminded me that that place existed. Um, you know, and the other thing, which I think is really important is the whole idea of the integrated concert venue with the joint, right? I mean, they brought so many bands through all the years. And of course, now they've uh, built a newer, bigger version where they still are doing this today. But I remember going to see bands there um, that just weren't playing anywhere else in town. And it, it, I don't know, it was a really interesting and unique vibe. The one thing that uh, I you know, didn't make it in, and I, I'm sure you had space constraints, but um, the whole idea of the pool party with rehab, mm-hmm. uh, I don't, did they originate that? And I don't know if that's, if that's them or not. There's, but, I mean, another, huge there's, success, another piece right? about, there's another piece about rehab. Oh, okay. In there, yeah. So I didn't do that one, but there's another kind of one of the sidebar type pieces about rehab. Mm-hmm. I mean, amazing, you know, another... Whatever you think about uh, about rehab as a customer, clearly something that has had a huge lasting impact, right? I mean, that it's been copied by everybody else and uh, makes it a ton of money for everybody. So um, I don't know, pretty fascinating, Chuck. I mean, you're a rock and roll fan. Yep. You're a Las Vegas fan. Yep. How how does the hard rock land in your cross crosshairs of of those two things? You know. I remember when I was working at the Ticketmaster, at uh, one of the executives there one day, it was like a Thursday, I was like, hey, what are you doing? We're outside smoking cigarettes. And I go, what are you doing this weekend? And he says, I'm going to Vegas. Where are you going? He's like, I'm going to the Hard Rock. You know, and it was a big, it was like, yeah, all right, man, cool. Like, it was a big, big, big deal to, uh, to be going to the Hard Rock. You know, and I looked at the, Rates for rooms every weekend were six, seven, eight hundred bucks a night. You know, everything was packed. When you went in there, it was chaos. You know, there was just people everywhere, party, screaming, yelling, drinking at the bar, all this stuff. And the bands, when they would come in, not only would they just have, you know, the uh, kick-ass group, whoever it was, but they'd have like somebody huge who probably could normally play in the Enormo Dome, Right, they'd be playing in the joint. You know, so right. it was, re- wow, this is really special. And then on top of it, they'd have shows, and I think, Dave, you mentioned that uh, in there, like where Duff McKagan's playing with this guy and that guy and dude from the Sex Pistols. And, you know, these bands that never existed would play either an after show or uh, any number of things, you know, just a one-night surprise engagement. You know, and that echoes back to you know the 2 a.m. show at the sands right where all the people who were had the night off just got together and got on stage and played some songs ripped through some charts and sang some songs you know and that kind of excitement really is you know for a music fan somebody who loves music and partying and having a good time you know that is really what you want it's a one of a kind experience it's not like going to see the production show every night 
you're seeing something that nobody is going to ever see except for the people who are there. That's what makes a place really special. Yeah, I I agree. They they uh, they did seem to capture a certain energy. Um, so, but let's talk about what's happened to the Hard Rock in recent years. I mean, it would. I think most of uh, what we're thinking back to is uh, you know uh, maybe a decade ago, um, and if we fast forward to the current decade. Um, you know, you look at where they've ended up. So, Dave, you mentioned uh, they the Mandalay Bay took a lot of uh, or captured a lot of a similar crowd at, after it opened, and then of course the Palms when it opened in two thousand one um, went squarely after the same same audience and had a lot of success with that. Um, and then, of course, as you mentioned in your article, uh, the change of control. So he sold out of the company. Um, and then since then, it's been through uh, multiple owners after um, a pretty tough economy. But what happened? Did they did they were so innovative and they created uh, a, a unique vibe that was super successful? <clears throat> were they unable to change as the city changed or is it just is it is it also or is it more of like a nightclub thing where there's if you're going to market your hotel like a club there's only you're only ever going to be super hot for some period of time it's not something you can hold on to i think it shows what happens when you have a resort that is the product of one person's mind and that one person leaves the creative process i think mm-hmm. this is what happens because you know, Peter Morton just knew what to do, and that's the thing I really liked about him was that it wasn't just, you know, he didn't overanalyze everything with the dollars and cents. You know, they had market research, but again, it wasn't all about, oh, we've got to maximize RevFar, and blah, 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 blah. He wasn't a publicly traded company. He was, you know, hey, this is what I want to do. I kind of want to make a cool place for me and my fr- Hollywood friends to hang out at. You know, that was really what drove the place. And I think once you lose that and you say, well, we can maximize our square footage, we take the joint out and make it bigger, we'll sell more seats and jam it out there on Paradise and totally ruin the view of the place, you know, totally ruin the view and totally ruin the aesthetics of the property, you know, that'll make more money, that'll be more profitable, and let's add more rooms and let's add this. I think it just kind of takes away from what was so good, which was that it was a boutique, was that it was a small place. Yeah. Um, and I had forgotten just how small it was when it opened. I mean, yeah, I think you said 339 yeah. rooms or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that is tiny. And they that were running at tiny. they were running at 100 percent occupancy for a long time. Yeah. You know, and then they expanded, and then you know, the latest expansion, which was at the wrong time to do it. But I would say, even if the recession hadn't happened, it still really changes that property. It's, it's a nice property, but it kind of takes something away from it. Is is it? Not to change focus here, but you know, you mentioned sort of the singular focus of a specific individual, and I mentioned the Palms a moment ago. But if mm-hmm. you look at if you look at what's happened there over the past few years, not too dissimilar a story, right? Pretty massive expansion took on a lot of debt, um, and that ended up uh, circumstances a little bit different. But that ended up where you know they lost their sort of singular vision their creative force and you know people don't really talk about the palms too much anymore yeah you know it's the same thing back when you had george saying hey this is what i want 
And, you know, Georgia Coast knows as much about the business as anybody. So when you had that, it was, I think, very different. And you can have people who still want to make money there, but it's not, it's not quite the same thing. And I think that shows, you know, that to me, that's the important thing is that you can design stuff by committee, but I think in the end, that's going to tell and people are aware that it's not the same. You, you talk a little bit about the business relationship that this hard rock has with the plethora of other hard rocks. Just, you know, they sort of split up the, the geography. Do you think that that is a negative in the sense that there are multiple hotels called Hard Rock that are run by different people, different standards, different everything. There's no like so if you were have a terrible experience at Hard Rock in Tampa, you then hate Hard Rock forever because you don't realize that the Vegas one is totally different. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not the same as it was, you know. So we're not it's not still 1995, and this is the only place where you can get this. So I think that does I think it does change it. And you know anyway, it seems so removed from the original founders that it's a very different vision now. And I'll throw out there, the other thing that Hard Rock really was ahead of the curve on was their marketing and their branding. And I, one of the things I was really amazed at was the total amount of things, items, memorabilia you can get with Hard Rock on it. Yeah. And, you know, I remember back in the 80s, this was such a huge thing because people oh, would dude. say, I've got the Hard Rock wherever. In, everywhere. In, uh, uh, Vladivostok Hard Rock Cafe, you know, that was like the huge thing. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's kind of, so it's kind of funny how that's all changed. And to me, it's so interesting that we've kind of, so many other places like that have come and gone, like All-Star Cafe, what are the other ones. Yeah, well, you kinda, mentioned, I mean, Planet Hollywood, Hollywood is obviously still around. Planet Hollywood's but still it's, there. But it's kind of, you know, it's definitely past its heyday. But, but yeah, you know, I mean, you mentioned like you know, Rainforest Cafe is obviously is obviously still existing yeah. as well. But yeah, I mean, this whole concept was copied many, many times, right? Yeah, and like those, you know, All Star Cafe now seems so dated. It's such a '90s thing, but Hard Rock is still relevant, even though that's from the '70s. So they've done a very good job at keeping that brand relevant. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. I definitely would recommend um, that folks read it. Uh, the the one thing I want to ask before we move on is like the very last line, the very par- last paragraph of the story. It's a quote from Peter Morton. He talks about how he saw this opening for the Hard Rock, but then he mysteriously says, "And I see another vacuum today. If I decide I want to go back to the table, I'd build a hotel unlike anything that exists in Las Vegas today. It's a wonderful, vibrant community, uh, and I'd love being and I've loved being part of it. So I'm." guessing that you asked the follow-up question like what is he talking about like what is well, he going to what's he doing next i Please. wasn't gonna say well sure give me your idea that's gonna make you yeah okay uh, fair enough for free you know i'm not gonna insult my ass in that but the, my first thought when he said that was i've got to tell hunter and charles uh number one number two that could be our guest for uh Vimp. oh he'd be great so yeah, if he's if he's going to be in town, he could be our guest and tell us in person there. But that was what really intrigued me the most, and I haven't seen him say that anywhere else. So if you want to uh, put me in that club and call that an exclusive, I don't know if you can. But that was kind of <laughs> interesting to me. Like, hey, he wants to come back, and that would be a huge deal because yeah. he, whatever he would do, he would do it right. He's got the track record, so that's the kind of person who want coming into Las Vegas. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting that was I was thinking about this when we were talking about SL talking about SLS was what he did with 
Morton's when they first opened. So they had the Morton's restaurant was really big in Hollywood. And when the, he opened this up in Vegas, right. he opened Morton's, he opened Mortoni's, which was the Italian twist on it to kind of make it. And he, he said that to me too. Like, well, yeah, I didn't want to have the same exact thing because people get get that in LA and I wanted to give them something different, but I still wanted to use the, that name. So that's why I did it. So he was a very savvy guy. It would have been very easy just to knock off, right? Hey, let's slam, you know, Morton's works. Let's slam that in here. And it would have been crowded, but he had that idea to do it a little bit differently. Yeah, U- umami pasta. Get some umami pasta in here. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, I thought it was a great story. It's one of those things where you read it and you realize that you had, at least I did, realize you had holes in in sort of your your understanding of what uh, some of the timelines on these things were and how important some of this stuff was. So, I uh, I'm glad that uh, you you went out and wrote it, and uh, I definitely recommend everybody else read it. Of course, we'll link it in the show notes, but you can find it on. Uh, Vega 7's website shouldn't be too hard to track down. Um, anything else on the Hard Rock before we move on? No, that's it. You know, um, like you learned about reading it, I learned a lot researching and writing it. So that's kind of the fun thing. I love getting to do these articles where I get to actually learn a lot of stuff and then share that because I always, always learn a lot. Very cool. All right. Well, we'll put the link in the show notes, but go out and read the story. Uh, it sounds like I missed some of the sidebar stories. The web version doesn't necessarily have them all in the right spot, so I'm going to have to go back and, and uh, make sure I get all the background. All right. Um, we are going to move on to talk about everyone's favorite couple, Elaine and Steve. Steve and Elaine, no matter how you say it, they're super important. Of course, I'm uh, referring to Elaine and Steve Wynn, the now-divorced couple that uh, founded Wynn Resorts, uh, brought Mirage Resorts to prominence, created a gambling empire. Um, you know, we've talked about uh, Wynn Resorts a lot on this show, uh, especially uh, since Steve and Elaine got divorced and the some of the changes we've seen uh, at some of the properties. But, um, you know... This weekish, I don't know, not that long ago. It's been a few days now, I guess. But um, we learned that <laughs> I I just loved the uh, the press releases and some of the attached pieces on this because they're just I in many I, there's there's some piece parts of this that are in my opinion highly disingenuous. Um, but uh, so we learned that the board that Win Resorts, you know, they've decided after much deliberation that um, they do not want to renominate Elaine Wynn, who has been a director at the company since its inception. Um, they've decided not to renominate her for the post. And, um, you know, we, we found out that Steve tried really hard to, uh, to change their minds, but he was unsuccessful. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just too bad. These, that's the way these things go sometimes. Um, and she'll have to vacate her, the premises immediately. Uh, so I'm being totally sarcastic again, because, um, the press release did indicate that, um, Mr. Wynn, uh, had given his support for her candidacy, um, but that the board, uh, the different committees, they have a committee that is, uh, in charge of determining who the director should be, um, decided that it wasn't in the company's best interest. And so he sadly was unable to help. Uh, I, you know, this is, I, I think, yet another step 
in um, in the unraveling of this relationship. Uh, oh, I should mention, um, Elaine is not taking this sitting down. She is mounting her own campaign to be uh, to be elected to be put on the board. Of course, the shareholders decide who the board members are through proxy through their their proxy statements and doing their voting. And so. Um, she herself, uh, well, we, there's so many ways we could go with this. So uh, the, the, the reason, one of the reasons that um, I find uh, the statement from the company uh, as far as Mr. Wynn's position on this really hard to swallow is that, you know, Steve Wynn is no shrinking violet. He is totally in charge of that company. He runs the place with like an iron fist. <laughs> Nothing happens there that he didn't want and the people on the board are his buddies. I, I'm sorry. I know that you know corporate governance is an important topic, and they have a certain number of independent directors, but even those people are his buddies. Like, they've served on boards together for many, many years. A lot of them came over from Mirage days. Like, these are all people he knows personally, and they'll basically do whatever he wants. And uh, they try, and you know, in many ways, for good reason. Like he has an incredible track record. It's not like they've just got some crazy person running the place. Like he has earned that. But that's why it's very, 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 very difficult for me to believe that uh, if he had wanted his uh, ex-wife to serve, that that wouldn't be happening. So I just simply can't believe it. And um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens in this proxy vote. I mean, um, you know, Elaine herself obviously has a lot of shares that I assume she will vote for herself. Uh, but there are, you know, the majority of the stock is held by big institutional investors. Um, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of back channeling going on there as well, right? Because these are all, it's a pretty tight-knit small community, the people that run those funds that buy that stock. And um, Steve's a pretty influential guy, an important guy, and if he's decided he doesn't want her there, uh, it's I'm sort of worried that her she's going to be done in. Um, I, I'm kind of rambling on this topic, but uh, I, I just you know uh, it's sort of sad. I guess in a way inevitable. Um, it seemed like things you know he saw she had sued to dissolve the agreement that required her to vote her shares along with his. That was part of their divorce settlement. Um, she wanted to, after Okada got booted, she wanted to be able to vote her shares separately and be able to sell them when she wanted to. There was a bunch of restrictions on how she was able to exercise those rights after they got their divorce. Um, I don't know. Chuck, what do you think about this? I mean, you wrote about that. You've written about this a couple of times at Vegas Stripping. What am I missing? What, what holes am I not filling in? And where's your head out on, head out on this? Oh, man. This is like... This is like manna from heaven. Right? You gotta <laughs> got love like a big family fight, right? They the board gave four reasons for not wanting to nominate uh, Elaine Wynn. Uh, the the deal is is there's three types of directors: class one, two, and three. And every third year, one of the classes goes up for re-election. There was three previously. This year, they decided that they only want to have two. They only want to have two directors, so they're eliminating a director job, and they're nominating the other two existing Class 1 directors instead of Elaine. So essentially, they're eliminating her job. Uh, the reasons they gave, and I'm going to go in different order here because it's different. Uh, number four is, the last one is, uh, Mrs. Wynn's lack of independence under NASDAQ listing standards and resulting inability to serve on key board committees. 
Mm-hmm. She's been a director with the company since it was formed. In 2002, she's one of the original founders of the corporation. This this was not a problem ever before. Right. Okay. Uh, number two and number three, potential indenture covenant violations triggered by the adverb, blah, 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 blah. Basically, this is the lawsuit that she filed right. to, to get her... Uh, to gain control of her equity stake and to uh, be able to vote her shares independently. So she actually wants more independence, which goes against number four. And then the last one, which I found just exhilarating, concerns over actual or potential conflicts of interest. And this to me is like a big, a giant sign that says Andrew Pascal on top. Right, seriously. And, and Ilan Resort. Which, whether you know or not, is is the resort that he, that Andrew is developing with uh, James Packer. So now I, we've been the- theorizing that Elaine had something to do with this. So maybe they know that when that Elaine does have something, or not, or they read VT. Steve reads VT and he sees, hmm, well, Elaine and Elon, boy, they sure are spelled the same. Uh, that's real close. So they've got all these ridiculous reasons, none of them which really make any real clear sense, except in in the light of Steve wants complete and total ownership of the company. He doesn't want to blow it like last time. He got Okada kicked out, and now he wants Elaine kicked out. So all those shares will eventually become absorbed into the company. Who knows? Well, I don't know if they're going to go to get shares. He might not be that harsh. But the, the explanations that he fought for him, it just shows that Steve is vain and he doesn't want to be seen in public as beating up on his ex-wife. Yeah. I mean, clearly that wouldn't play well, right? So, no. But this, it is. This is what it is. Of course it is. I mean, I don't – I have like zero doubt um, that if this is entirely uh, something that he has orchestrated. And I, I, I say that not because I, I'm not trying to apply I have proof, but I'm just saying logic dictates that uh, uh, live long and prosper. That um, that uh, this has got to, I mean, what there's nothing else that makes sense, right? Like, this is just, this is the corporate chess game, and he's now trying to checkmate her. And um, I don't see any other plausible explanation for this, though I would love to hear one if somebody has an alternate theory. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he's trying to he's trying to get rid of her. And it's the last piece of the divorce. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know if this was the plan all along. I don't know if, if his uh, new wife is saying, hey, you know, I don't, really don't like her hanging around um, <laughs> or, or what. But um, clearly it's orchestrated, planned. I, I just don't see any other way to explain it. And... Uh, you know, it's it's sad. It's too bad. I mean, a, a lot of people lamented the divorce. You know, people like sort of they were an iconic couple, and um, I think you know Elaine doesn't get nearly enough credit for all of this company's and the predecessor's company's success over the years. I think she's had a lot of input and um, has been an incredibly important figure. Uh, I like that she's fighting back. Um, you know, she's, I've, I've met her a couple times, super classy lady. Um, not surprised that she's doing it in a fairly restrained, but you can tell, you know, you can tell that as someone that is, it is, that is fairly restrained, the language that she's using in, in her responses are fairly forceful, right? You can tell that like, there's, there, <laughs> this is now, 
blood has been spilled, and uh, it, people are fucking pissed off. So um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's fascinating, and especially you know since it's playing out in public. I'm sure that that would not be Steve's preference, but that's no other choice in this in this instance. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens, right? Yeah, what's I mean, going to happen? What happens if she wins? She wins and gets on the board, and then she wins the uh, the lawsuit against Steve. That means she's you now what a million shares away from taking the control of the company. Yeah, and I, I you know that would be <laughs> that would be crazy, right? There's so if that something like that did happen, and it's I I would say um, a couple of months ago when. Uh, I can't remember. Maybe it was you, Chuck. Some said something like, "Well, what if Elaine's going to be involved in this uh, other resort?" I was like, "Yeah, it's impossible. Like she's too she's too deep in the wind thing, even given um, her current status." But that's all all changed now. But you know, think about if you go reading through any wind resorts proxy statement, like you realize that the whole company is built with the idea that Steve Wynn is in control of it, right? And there's, like, all kinds of warnings and provisos about change of control and, like, this all of our covenants are going to explode if Steve Wynn isn't in charge anymore. Like, they've built their whole brand around him, and again, rightfully so, the guy's, you know, got the track record to deserve it. Uh, it's not like it's all smoke and mirrors or anything like that, but um, it would be earth-shattering, I think. It would be the, it would be crazy. How great would that be? <laughs> It'd be fun to watch. Yeah. Now this, you know, I, I picture this as a movie, right? So all of these people who have played instrumental parts in Steve's life comes to this big, the big courtroom scene, and then the proxy battle, and all this stuff coming up, and then the tail end. Roger Thomas comes up to Steve and says, "I quit," and he goes over and works across the street for Andrew too. Leaving Steve completely alone with his money. It would be kind of insane and amazing. And I would, like, literally uh, nine months ago, I would have told you you were crazy and there's absolutely no way that would ever happen. And now I'm like, eh, it could happen. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Like, I, I, stranger I, than fiction. I still wouldn't, like, put any money on it, probably, but, like, I, and I now can entertain that possibility. Dave. You're very quiet. I know that you have to like yeah. maintain a collegial working environment with these people. Like you want, you know, when you write Steve Wynn's book one day, you can't be on the record saying that he was a crazy person. But, you know, any thoughts on this? Oh, you know, I don't know. It's like any relationship. What can we really know from that? I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I think it does show how the ownership of these companies is such high stakes and such kind of so far removed from the roots of what it used to be, you know, back. And Steve will be the first person to say this, you know, like, hey, it's just a gambling hall. What am I, you know, what am I being so pretentious about? It's just a place where people come and gamble. It's no big deal. No, well, that's not true anymore, and it's a huge multinational. So to me, that's the most interesting. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how it unravels uh, or over the course of, uh, I guess, the shareholders meeting is when? April sometime, I think. So, um, April 24th, yeah. So, we'll, the other I thing guess that, we'll find out. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. The other thing that got me was the whole uh, gold ticket thing. Uh, yeah. You need to vote the gold. It was very, very uh, Willy Wonka. 
<laughs> totally. You know, vote your goal. So I just picture them mailing out these. You know, some people get white proxies and some people get gold proxies. And you, I don't know what you win if you get the gold proxy, but yeah, you have to vote the gold proxy. It's kind of, a, it just seems kind of a weird way, weird kind of corporate governance. You know, I think this stuff would be all done digitally by now. Yeah, I As opposed still get- to mailing in a physical. I get this stuff in from my brokerage people. They look they look like Scantrons. I mean, they're like, you know, punch cards, basically. I mean, they're pretty <laughs> old school. Um, yeah, I noticed that the return address she used was her office at, at Wynn, so hopefully they're not, you know, throwing away all of her mail or something like that. <laughs> that, would, that would be kind of mean. Um, they threw away her brother. Yeah, though, that's another interesting point, right? So her brother has worked for the company for ages, um, I think a executive host and you know, we learned via Norm, I believe it was, that uh, he is no longer employed with the company. And his wife, so. too. His wife was also an executive host. Yeah. So, they're I mean. Both, they're both listed in the in the, the press release about uh, the Elaine stuff. So it's, you know, clearly it seems like this has had some collateral damage. And uh, it's, you know, it's interesting to see how it unfolds. We'll. we'll it, the 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 um, ultimate punctuation mark on this would be if uh, Andrea Wynn is nominated to the board of directors anytime soon. <laughs> that would just be amazing. Yeah. Um, all right. I think that's it for the Steve and Elaine show. Um, the one thing that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up is the IRS. It is almost tax time, and everyone's favorite government agency is making news in Las Vegas this week because they're talking about changing the reporting requirements. So the lucky folks out there that have gambled in Las Vegas and won know that if you sit down at a slot machine and win a jackpot of $1,200 or more, you will, in along, along with your money, you will get a form to fill out that uh, is a reporting requirement to the IRS that uh, so just so they know uh, that you won that money, um, you're still you know no matter how much you win or lose, you're supposed to uh, report this stuff on your own taxes. Um, but once you start winning in certain lump sums, they uh, they want to be specially notified because they're not so sure they can trust you. Um, so they're talking this week about changing that reporting requirement from twelve hundred dollars to six hundred dollars, dramatically lowering. Uh, what that threshold would be. Uh, You'll see a lot of slot machines with uh, $1,199 jackpots uh, for exactly this reason. Um, The other thing I thought was interesting was that uh, in addition to changing sort of the cash reporting requirement, they were talking about the the IRS wants to know how feasible it would be to just get all the data from your slot card, basically. Like, they're saying, well, the casinos are sucking in all this data. Like, why can't you just tell us every dollar that somebody won or lost on these machines because you have it all. Is that cool? Um, and they're asking for public comment. So, I, you know, this is something that the American Gaming Association made some noise about this week. Uh, but I think, it, you know, it, obviously if if they did change these rules, it could have a significant impact on people. I mean, you're supposed to be paying your taxes no matter what. And uh, so I guess if everyone's doing what they're supposed to do, then it really doesn't make a difference. But... Uh, you know, it would, if nothing else, it would mean more paperwork. I'm sure there, there are some folks out there that 
win their jackpots and don't report them. So I don't know. This could have a this could be a pretty significant change if these things go through, especially the idea that all of your gambling that's tracked against your card is data that the IRS could get their hands on. I wonder if that would make people less interested in using in using slot cards. Uh, Dave, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, I think it shows I think this is going to be where the AGA's new approach is hopefully going to pay off for the industry where they kind of have to get out ahead of this and I think they need to say, look, this action needs to be modernized and it should be the reporting requirement should be $2,000, not $1,200, which is what it was 30 years ago. And I think they just also really need to people to say, this is really going to inconvenience us, and it probably will lead to them gambling less. With pe- People might say, well, hey, that's a good thing, but then the states are going to be getting less revenues and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of people who have a lot to lose if this goes through. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I'm actually kind of surprised. Like, there's a story in the RJ and some people tweeting about it. I'm sort of surprised it hasn't been a bigger thing. Because, like, this is – when you start talking about money in people's pockets, like, they get pretty riled up. Um, so I'm surprised we haven't seen a bigger outcry. Um, Chuck, what do you think about this? I think there's no outcry because people don't win playing slot machines. Okay. <clears throat> but but seriously, uh, is, is this because of uh, – Information control, is this because of money laundering? Is this because of taxes? Or is this because of currency? Fluctuation in currency means 600 bucks cashed in from somebody from another country is probably worth now what $1,200 is. Yeah, I don't... You know? I mean, I guess there's it depends a lot of, on the country. There's a lot of moving... Pictures here. If you're coming from Russia, I guess you know. If you if you float the reporting requirement with their currency, you'd have to change it every single day. But um, I I don't know. It's it, and I haven't read the actual IRS uh, source documents, and so maybe they actually make a case for it. They I you know it's it, especially on the uh, the second part the the feasibility of um, basically tracking the stuff with the electronic on the cards, the electronic slot machine, the card stuff. I mean, it feels like that's in some ways maybe a, a natural evolution of just the technology we have. Like, i.e., hey, man, like, you guys are all on the up and up anyway, so what's the big deal? Like, you just, this is information we have, and computers are cool, and why don't we just, just give it to us? It'll be fine. Like, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting argument to make, right? Like, it's what's it, what's the counter-argument? Like, well, no, but it's really hard, and but I don't I want to cheat on my taxes and not have you know. <laughs> it also makes you makes you wonder about like the, the often rumored technology backdoors, right? That all these systems, be it your iPhone or whatever it is, uh, emails that the government can easily go in and see if you're a terrorist or a money launderer or a tax fraud. You know. Is this total information awareness? Is this government paranoia? Or is, you know, I'd love to hear Dave say, is this really because money laundering is that big of a problem? Money laundering is a problem, but I don't know that people are laundering money playing, you know, the red, white, and blue three reelers in the VIP slot room. And, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, part of it, obviously any government agency is going to want more information and more control. So I think that's part of it right there. 
it feels like it feels inevitable. The the at least the like I'm not entirely sure what their rationale is behind dropping the reporting requirement, other than they think they're getting scammed and they want to try and capture more people in a bigger net. But the thing about the slot cards frankly seems like the other side of the coin right you, technology has enabled us to do player tracking and to provide those players with all kinds of benefits but the flip side of that is we now have all this data and hey this government agency that's in charge of making sure you pay your taxes would like to get their eyes on it like that is not a surprise to me could this also be a, a precursor to get their fingers in internet gaming so when they do legalize it they'll already have access to this on the internet, and if it's six hundred bucks, that point, then hmm. you know, automating wins and losses and cash outs, all that jazz. You know how easy it is to write a bot, do this stuff. It's an interesting so the, idea. Yeah, I don't know. I I hadn't thought about that, but that's an interesting idea. I don't. I have no sense of how forward thinking agencies like the IRS are. Um, my my. <laughs> I probably look at them like a lot of other Americans do. Is they seem like this monolithic, scary agency that you really don't want to have any contact with if you can avoid it. Um, but that's that. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe they are. Maybe they are uh, looking towards the future. Um, Dave, I think you made a really interesting point, which was the AGA. I, we know about, well, at least my impression is that this story is getting play because the AGA put it out there um, and that they do seem to be more proactively than I can remember uh, trying to, you know, make sure that people are aware of this, which I'm, I'm assuming that they're trying to generate, you know, some, a groundswell of public support for, for their side, their position, which is, you know, Hey, if anything, these re- requirements need to go the other direction. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think it's interesting to see, um, how that'll un- unravel. So it sounds like uh, the IRS is in a sort of public comment phase and they haven't yet decided what they're going to do. But, uh, you know, this is something that if they do change the rules, <coughs> could have a material impact on, you know, people that listen to this show and people that go to Las Vegas on a regular basis. I mean, you know, the it'll, it, it'll also be interesting to see if we see a lot of $599 jackpot calibration on some of these machines <laughs> after something like this. You got to think that uh, that the casinos are not excited about doing extra, extra paperwork, but at the same time, slashing every jackpot in half doesn't seem like a great solution either. So I don't know. All right. Any other thoughts on the IRS? Other than we, we love you, IRS. We love you so much. <laughs> We love Checks you, love you, love mail. you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. I think we're going to stop there. We had a thing on. I had a an item on the schedule talking about Macau, and but I don't, we don't really have all that much meat on the bone there. So I, don't, I think we'll be good without it. Um, so we will wrap things here. Let people get to their weekends and have a wonderful time. But before we do, we will do. Uh, our SureBets segment. So SureBets is our opportunity to share stuff with y'all, um, you folks out there in internet land, things that we think that you might find interesting. They may or may not have anything to do with gambling, um, but we think they're cool, and uh, you're listening to us, so we will share them with you. Um, let's see. Chuck, can I start with you? I don't got nothing. Dude, you have one job. 
All right. Well, I'm gonna... I, you know, I can talk about rain buckets. All but... right. Sounds good. Let's do okay. it. Yeah. All right. So California is a desert. California, where I live, is a desert, just like Nevada, right? And yeah, the local government here will pay you to put a bucket underneath the downspout from your, uh, from your uh, gutters to save the rain. So the rain goes into this bucket and it stays there. And then you... Use it to water your lawn or water whatever sporadically as opposed to blasting your sprinklers on. So I got a bunch of buckets and I put some some gutters up and the day I put them up rained like a son of a bitch and all my buckets are filled with water. And I'm pretty excited about this. So, you know, basically, you know, using the preserving our natural resources, uh, cycling, taking care of the earth, cleaning up after yourself, don't waste plastic. You know, the Earth environmentalist. I'm a hippie. I dig this shit. This is a throwback to Dave's story, right? Because Dave's story had, you know, it showed that uh, Peter Morton was an environmentalist ahead of his time. Sorry, Dave, I cut you off. So you're you're putting water on your plants? Yeah, water. Like like out of the toilet? (laughs) Uh, Electrolytes. Yeah, you should use Brondo. Why don't you do that? (laughs) Anyway, um, can can I go? Yeah. All right, my thing is kind of is much in the same vein, so I was a little bit surprised. To enjoy the natural environment of Las Vegas, if you're coming to Las Vegas, we're entering the period where it's a couple weeks or months where it's actually pleasant outside during the day. So if you're coming to Las Vegas between now and about the middle of May, make a point of going outside and spending some time outside doing something because it really is very pleasant this time of year. Not so much in July. It's a good tip. I um, I love it out there uh, this time of year, or even like late September, early October, sixteenth, uh, seventeenth, and eighteenth. <laughs> um, it's just it's uh, you know it's it's quite quite pleasant, and um, yeah. So I'm not surprised that you're giving that shout out, Chuck. I had not heard about like. So is it your city county government who's who is encouraging you to do this like, I, the, as far as i know like the city of santa barbara doesn't does not care about this thing but they should the ut- yeah the utilities are owned by the city los angeles the department right. of water and power they right. they uh they give rebates for any kind of environmental upgrades you do like if you change your pool motor they'll pay for it if you get solar panels on the roof they'll kick down a couple thousand bucks to do that and give you different rates uh if you rip your lawn out they'll pay pay you to do that to change your turf into a desert scape and uh, they also do this thing with the rain buckets so you know it's pretty simple and you see the way the water is right now california just uses so much water and any any peak at the state of Lake Mead should tell you, you know, you got to do something. We all have to do something about this. So, yeah, no, it sounds like a good program. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, so um, Monday. Oh, Apple- oh, wait, I got one more. Yeah. Oh, wait, forget it. No, I want to hear okay. it now. Tell- yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say Apple Watch. <laughs> oh, okay. Also, well, I was going to mention it because. Um, <laughs> It is something that I've been thinking about. Monday, Monday, Apple's having an event where they will almost certainly introduce their or finalize the details of their Apple Watch. We'll see if the Apple Watch ends up being 
a hit product or not. I'm um, pretty interested in the idea of it. I've been writing some some software for it and uh, playing with it, uh, or playing with the the tools at least uh, ahead of time. I think it's got some interesting potential, but uh, really got to get hands on with one before I can before I can give a verdict. Um, but that should be interesting. Um, but in addition to that. The other thing that I wanted to mention was uh, this is going to appeal to like three people, but um, you know one of my favorite tools is an app called Omni Outliner. Omni is a, a software development company from Seattle. They make a whole bunch of different productivity apps for the Mac and the iPhone and the iPad. And Omni Outliner is exactly what it sounds like. It's an outlining tool, um, but I use it a ton. And uh, I use it to do, like, for instance, the rundowns for this show or an Omni Outliner. I use it that's sort of just the way my mind thinks when I'm, like, brainstorming on something. I'll put together these outlines. And so I use it a lot. And uh, it's been on the Mac for ages. Uh, it used to come with the Mac, I think, for a while. Um, and it's been on the iPad for a long time. But they're now adding it, uh, adding support for the iPhone as well, which is nice because I can now edit my outlines wherever I go. So um, I would... For those folks that are maybe uh, need to organize their thoughts on any one of those platforms or writers or whatever, uh, I think it's a great tool and I would totally recommend it. So Omni Outliner is the thing that I'm thinking about right now in addition to my good friends at Apple Watch Land. Um, John Hall, I have still not received my Apple Watch that you were supposed to send me. Um, to bring mine over yesterday. I know, I know. And I, you know what? I tweeted him about that, and he didn't respond, which makes me think that like I'm hitting a little bit too close to home, and I should stop bothering him. Um, so, sorry, John. Yeah, um, I, see, I see those ignored tweets face-to-face. So, <laughs> just basically now, you can't talk about anything Apple with the poor guys. Yeah, well, you know, so <laughs> Fruit Company people, you know, he's doing, his, he's doing his job. He basically acts like he doesn't know me when I ask him questions. So, um, I guess that's the way it's supposed to be. Anyway. I want to put some chips behind your Omni thing. Uh, oh, yeah. I've, I've been an Omni graffler since that yeah, thing yeah. came out. It's basically like Vizio yep. for Mac. Kind of yeah. deal. So you can organize your flows and your charts and how everything connect. I use it to build software, just the large scale structure of how everything is kind of going to connect together. And it's a priceless piece of software, really easy to use. Yeah, they have a, bu- a bunch of tools, and Graffle is another one of them. And it, they're doing actually this thing where they're um, expanding to the iPhone. They're doing it for Graffle as well. So Omni Graffle has been a long time Mac app, it's been on the iPad since 2010. Uh, they are now expanding that also, just like Outliner, to the iPhone. So, um, yep, great set of tools. They make uh, great productivity apps. So if you're on an Apple platform, I would definitely make sure you are checking out their stuff. Dave. All right. <laughs> you can use it to make diagrams for the slot machines you're building. Of course. Yeah. Um, all right. That's it. That's all we got. I want to make sure that you, dear listener, please, you know, you should go out and rate the show on iTunes because that, I'm told, that helps us. Um, uh, some kind of magical algorithm there that incorporates that stuff when people are looking for podcasts. Um, if you want to leave a comment about the show, maybe you want to reply to something we said or want to just tell us how awesome we are, um, you can do that at VegasGangPodcast.com. You can also tweet at the show at, at Vegas Gang. Um, not a lot of activity on that count, but you know we talk about upcoming episodes and sometimes respond to uh, to reader comments. Um, but uh, yeah, beyond that, I'm gonna go around the table here. You guys can tell people where they can find you individually. Doctor Dave, if people want to track you down, where who can they call? I'm just a phone call away. 
<laughs> oh. UNLV Gaming on Twitter is probably the best way to reach me. Yeah, they, they can find me there. Or, you know, they seem to find me, so yeah, not, not hiding. All right, very good. Uh, Chuck Monster, where can people find you? I will be next month centerfold in Vegas 7. There you go. Nice. Nice. Uh, people can find me uh, at Hunter on Twitter. Um, thanks, guys. Have a great weekend.